So we are halfway through this series called Outcry, study of 12 Psalms of David. David wrote a lot more than 12 Psalms. But for most of the Psalms, he fails to tell us the historical situation that gives rise to the Psalm. But for some, he does. And so we've been looking at Psalms uh, for which we know what David was going, what was going on in David's life when he penned the Psalm. So we get to listen in as David cries out to the Lord from the midst of his situation. And he, sometimes he's saying, God, you've got to deliver me or I'm sunk. And sometimes he's saying, thank you for delivering me in the past. I'm praising you. And sometimes he's saying, you know what? I'm just taking great comfort from the fact that you're on the throne. And as a result, I know that life's okay. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. And we're going to start with the historical setting, which we find in the superscription. The superscriptions were added when the book of Psalms was compiled. Uh, So David did not write the superscription, but it is considered part of sacred scripture. Psalm 52, superscription. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. All right, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 23, but I'll tell you. Uh, Saul is out to kill David. God has told Saul, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and yours and give it to another. And so Saul is determined not to let that happen, and his suspicions fall, rightfully so, on David, because God has anointed David to be the next king. And Saul figures, I can thwart God's plan by killing David off. Well, Saul's son, Jonathan, who is just this great guy who loves David and fears the Lord, tells uh, David, my dad is out to kill you. You've got to flee Jerusalem now, immediately. So uh, David takes off, and he flees Jerusalem, and he hasn't had time to pack. So he has no food. He doesn't even have weapons. And he goes north about two miles to a town called Nob where apparently that's where the tabernacle is and uh, most of the priests, or at least many of them. And David uh, goes to Ahimelech, the chief priest, and he tells him a, a lie. He says, Ahimelech, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. And it was so urgent, I had to flee. You know, I had to just get on, get on with my mission, and I didn't pack any food, and I don't have any weapons. Can you help me out? I've got to, you know, I'm going to be meeting my men shortly. Well, Ahimelech uh, is a little, we get a sense that he's a little bit skeptical, but skeptical, but he's like, okay. And he gives David uh, the bread, the show bread, which is um, the 12 loaves of bread that are uh, dedicated to the Lord each week, and then they get eaten by the priests. Well, David gets that. And Ahimelech says, I don't have any weapons except the sword of Goliath the giant, whose head you cut off. Do you want that one? Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. And and then David, he moves on. Well, we are told that uh, Doeg the Edomite observed this exchange between David and Ahimelech. And then the story moves on. Well, Doeg the Edomite, Edomites are not Israelites. They're descendants of Esau, uh, an Arab, But he's a servant of Saul. He's the chief shepherd. Uh, In fact, he's sort of over all the shepherds who are taking care of King Saul's sheep. 
fast forward in the story. Saul is now um, out somewhere in pursuit of David, he and his officers, and, and Doeg the Edomites there. And Saul, uh, if you remember, Saul was often plagued by an evil spirit. And so he, he is oftentimes uh, getting conspiratorial. And he figures, everybody's against me. And so he's in one of these moods, and he starts yelling at his officers, who apparently are all from the tribe of Benjamin, his tribe. He's, uh, he sort of elevated his own tribesmen uh, as his uh, captains and generals. And so he starts berating them. Listen, if David becomes king, do you think he's going to make you captains and generals in his army? Do you think he's going to hand you vineyards and perks? Life is not going to be as good for you if David becomes king. So why in the world aren't you helping me find this guy? Nobody's bringing me good intel. You guys are all just sort of uh, lackluster. Are you not in this with me? He's just really frustrated. Well, Doeg the Edomite, who is a shepherd, not a military guy, but he sees an opportunity to become Saul's favorite. And so he steps forward and says, uh, King, I saw Ahimelech give David food and weapons when, when he first rebelled against you. Now, Doeg the Edomite knew full well Ahimelech had no, was not in any way trying to be treasonous, had no reason to believe that Saul was uh, anything but telling the truth. But he figures, if I can spin this, I'll just feed, you know, crazy Saul this story, and then I'll look like a guy who really cares about the king's best interest. And Saul seizes upon this. Ah! Ahimelech! He's against me. He's a traitor. Fast forward. Uh, Saul and his officers have Ahimelech and the priests of Nob. There are, there are 86 of them in total. And Saul makes his accusation. And Ahimelech says, listen, I had no, as far as I knew, David was your servant. He tells me he's on a mission from you. When I helped him out, it was as if I'm helping you out. I had no, I didn't know he had, that he was, uh, you know, in rebellion against you. But Saul would have nothing. He, he just, somebody had to, to pay. And so he orders his, uh, his officers kill the priests, all of them. Well, they're God-fearing men, and so they stood up to the king, every one of them, and they said, we're not doing it. We're not going to kill God's anointed. We fear the Lord more than you. That's awesome. Doeg the Edomite, the non-Israelite, the non-God-fearer said, I'll do it. Shepherd, not, not one of the soldiers. And so he goes and personally kills 85 priests, puts them to the sword. Only one escapes the son of Ahimelech, Abiathar. And Abiathar makes it, somehow he makes it to David and tells David this story. And Psalm 52 is David processing the, the righteous anger he feels towards Doeg the Edomite. See, Do, Doeg doesn't stop at just killing the 85 priests. He goes on to kill every man, woman, child, and animal in the town of Nob. And so David writes Psalm 52. And listen, Doeg is not the only wicked person who has advanced his own self-interest through lying and violence. 
You and I have all encountered Doegs. And we've all had that that sense of this is unjust, this is wrong, that person needs to be punished, this, they need to be stopped. What do we do with that? That's what Psalm 52 teaches us, how to process that righteous indignation toward injustice in our world by faith. So let's go ahead and uh, I'm going to read Psalm 52, and then we'll come in and... Uh, See how David processes. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I want to point out first what David does not say, and this is very key. David does not say, just wait till I get my hands on you, Doeg. I'm going to strap on my sword, and me and my men, we're coming for you, and we're going to take you down. Just wait till I become king, and you're going to have your day of reckoning. He doesn't say that. Why not? Because at this time in David's life, he's not king, and it's not his responsibility to hold Doeg accountable. That's God's. See, the Bible says, leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And David is not, you know, he's not a government official. And so he doesn't have God-authorized ability to go um, bring justice upon Doeg. If he were to do that, he'd be a vigilante. He would be out of the will of God. And so often, I would say most of the time that's true for us. It's not appropriate for us to go exact vengeance. We want to, right? <laughs> and yet, it's not right. So what do we do? How do, how do we process and handle those, uh, those intense feelings of something needs to be done here? So what does David do? How does he process this? Well, the first thing I see is that David reminds himself uh, that the prosperity of the wicked never lasts because God, God always judges evil. Look again at verses 1 to 5. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. 
You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. So here's David, and I think what he's saying is, Doeg, why are you boasting in evil deeds? Don't you understand that there is a day of reckoning for for you and for all all evil deeds? Right now, Doeg, you, you think that your wickedness has helped you. Because here's the, the reality. Un, the Bible doesn't tell us that we have to imagine that all of a sudden Saul thinks Doeg is the only guy around who actually cares for me, right? He's the only one who obeyed me. He's the only one who's looking after my interests. Doeg becomes most favored guy of the king. His star rises. You, you can imagine he got... Uh, wealth as a reward. He had status, power. And in Doag's mind, I'm a genius, right? Man, my way of, of, uh, of scheming and positioning myself is brilliant. Look at what I have achieved. But David, David reminds himself, you know what? The, wick, the prosperity of the wicked never lasts because God always judges sin. There is coming a time, Doeg, when God will break you down forever. Think about that. God will break you down forever. When God's justice comes, you'll never get back up. When God breaks you down, you can never rise again. It's game over for you, Doeg. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. When you're in your tent, you're at home. And that to you is sort of the safe place, right? So Doeg's at home, he's feeling safe. And all of a sudden, God's judgment comes unexpectedly, instantaneously, violently. He will tear and snatch you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. He's going to take your very life from you, Doeg. And this threefold, in the Bible, that usually means uh, when it's kind of repeated three times, it's sort of uh, total. It's making a point. God will bring you to total ruin, Doeg. That's your future. So why would I envy you? Why would I fear you? Why do I need to be so wrought up? Do we boast in evil when we cheat on our taxes? We might not tell anybody about it, but are we boasting inside of ourselves saying, ha, I'm outsmarting the government. I got more money in my pocket. When we lie to our parents, we might not tell anybody about that, but inside ourselves, are we boasting and saying, ha, ha, I get to do what I want to do, and I don't even have to be in trouble. I'm winning. When we're having the affair on the side, nobody might know about that. We might be keeping it secret, but are we boasting inside of our, ourselves saying, I get my cake and eat it too. This is awesome. I'm winning. That's what Doeg is doing. 
You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Why does Doeg love evil more than good? Why does he love lying more than speaking what is right? Because he believes that lying and violence and you know cheating, stealing, stepping on other people, that that's, that's the path to getting the life that he really wants. And it wor- it's working for him, right? That's what he's thinking. <laughs> I'm where I wanted to be. And yeah, I had to use some unscrupulous uh, means to get there, but it's paid off. And so what is his heart fond of? What does he think works for him? Lying, murder. And I would say behind any one of, of the sins that we are caught up in, there is arrogance in our heart. We love, bottom line is we love that particular sin because we think we're better off with it in our lives. But any prosperity that we gain through wickedness will not last and it will be judged. So as David processes his righteous indignation toward the wicked acts of Doeg, he reminds himself, you know what, Doeg's prosperity won't last. God will judge him. Now, the second thing we see in verses 6 and 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Second thing is uh, David, David reminds himself, you know, the wicked will, uh, the righteous will Witness the downfall of the wicked. The righteous shall see, which means they're still around. They get to watch Doeg. They get to watch the Doegs of the world get brought down by God. They'll see it. They'll still be around. And they will fear. Fear there means they'll, they will learn. They'll watch it, and they'll say, you know what? Doeg's, type, Doeg's lifestyle, his means of uh, promoting himself at the expense of other people, it doesn't pay off, does it? And they shall laugh at him. I don't think that's a vindictive laugh. Ha, ha, ha. I think it's a laugh of relief. Huh? Doeg and the... Doegs of the world are no more. See, even if, that, even if this judgment doesn't come in our lifetime, it will come at the final judgment in which all the doegs will be destroyed. And the righteous will laugh because they're no longer bothering us. And their way of living, which the world tells us, man, you're crazy to be Christians. You're crazy to be so restricted in your sexuality and your ethics. And don't you see how that's limiting you in life? And we get this, right? But at the end of the day, we will laugh because it will be proven that obeying Christ, living close to God, living a righteous life was in fact the wise way to live. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying... Here's the root problem of, here's Doeg's root problem. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches 
and sought refuge in his own destruction? See the man who would not make God his refuge. So here's Doeg the Edomite. He lives in Israel. You can imagine there were lots of God-fearing Israelites who encouraged Doeg to become a uh, follower of Yahweh. Modern day, a, a lot of people encouraging him to become a Christian. You need God in your life. You need to repent of your sins and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And what does it say? Doeg would not do that. He made a choice. He said, I don't need God. I don't need to put my trust in God. I, I don't need to make God my refuge. I can handle life on my own. And so rather than put his trust in God, he trusted in the abundance of his riches. He said to himself, you know what? I am wealthy, and through my I'll do anything to become more wealthy tactics, I'm okay. I can, I can use my wealth to buy for me the life I want. Protection, right? All the pleasures that I want. I don't need God. I just need my, my own wealth and my own, uh, my own smarts. And sought refuge in his own destruction. I like better how the NIV translates this. Um, advantaged himself uh, at the on others uh, at the expense of other people. I think is the way they put that. His willingness to lie, kill if necessary, step on other people in order to get in, get ahead. And so you see the picture. There's Doeg who says, "I don't need God. I can carve out the life that that is good for me, the life I want on my own." Yes, I'm willing to use any tactics necessary, but you know what? It's working for me. And so David reminds himself, you know what? There's coming a day when I'm going to get to see Doeg brought down. And then the final or third step in David's processing his righteous anger, we find in verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Here I think David is uh, thinking about Doeg, and he's like, yeah, Doeg, right now you are Saul's favorite. Right now you are wealthy. You've got power. You've got the king's favor. And you think, you're, you think everything is good for you, but you know what? I'm way better off than you are, even though I'm the fugitive living in the wilderness. Because the righteous are always better off, even when the wicked appear to have the upper hand. So, you know, maybe the wicked person in your company is in the corner office, makes more money than you do, right now has the ear of the CEO. You're actually better off. Maybe you don't have the big house and the nice cars. You're better off if you are walking with God. So here's David, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Olive trees often um, live for hundreds of years. And a green olive tree is a new olive tree, a young olive tree, and it's in the house of God. So David is saying, I am thriving, I've got a great future, a long and great future ahead of me, and God is with me. I am dwelling with God. 
And I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. The, the love of God which lasts forever and ever. Doeg, you, your time in the sun is going to be super short-lived. And you've got a terrible future ahead of you. I, on the, on the other hand, have a great future ahead of me. Because the love of God lasts forever and ever. And I dwell right in the midst of that. And then the final piece that I see... Uh, David, final step David takes processing his righteous anger is in verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. What has he done? You have judged Doeg. He is, he is thanking God now because he is confident in God's uh, justice, his ultimate setting it right. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And so I think here is David saying, you know what? My act of faith right now is to wait. Wait upon God's perfect timing and his perfect justice. He will do it. God will uh, judge Doeg. It's going to happen. But he's going to do it in his time. Maybe not even in my lifetime. Maybe not until the day of judgment. But I'm going to wait. That's my act of faith. And so often that's our act of faith, isn't it? God doesn't authorize us to go out and exact judgment upon our enemies. But he says, trust me. Trust in my perfect time and my perfect justice. And so I know that there are some of you right here whose lives are right now in upheaval because wicked people are doing wicked things against you and those you love. And I encourage you to uh, learn from David. Resist the urge to exact vengeance even in your own heart and rather hand it over to the Lord. What I imagine David doing is I imagine David sitting down, writing Psalm 52, coming to the end where he says, I'm going to wait, and then he just releases it. Doeg is, is in the hands of God. I'm going to just let myself, I'm going to wait on the Lord and I'm going to free myself emotionally from this and I'm going to go on and live life, do what God's called me to do. And that's what we got to do and not let our, ourselves be tyrannized by a, a kind of unprocessed, unsettled anger. Put it over into the, into the perfect, just hands of God and then move on. In conclusion, I want to share a, uh, one story. Commander James Stockdale, he was the highest-ranking uh, U.S. officer who was interned in the Vietnamese prison camps. Uh, his plane was shot down, and he spent eight years in Hanoi Hilton, they called it, the uh, Vietnamese prison camp. He was tortured. Uh, they, they didn't just detain him. They were trying to break him. Uh, mentally and emotionally. And in 2001, he was interviewed by Jim Collins, and Jim Collins asked him, how did you survive eight years of torture and imprisonment? And he said, I never lost faith in the end. Kept my, kept my mind focused on the end. And then Jim Collins said, so who didn't make it out? 
And uh, at that point, Admiral Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The optimists, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then when Christmas came and went, we're going to be out by Easter. And then we're, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving. And then Christmas came again, and they, they died of a broken heart. And then he paused, and he turned, and he looked at uh, Jim Collins, and he said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you're going to never afford to lose, with the need for discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That applies to the Christian life. The world we live in right now is beset with evil. It's brutal. And that brutality often intersects our lives. And we need to look at it wide-eyed, but never lose sight of the fact that there is an end of victory in which God will perfectly judge the world. And he will set all things right. And that can free us to live life right now in a healthy way.